Uh, good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, happy Sweet 16 to all of you who called us home, I guess. Um, my daughter Jane turned 16 last week, so like, I was kind of like basically take Hiawatha's age and her age and kind of compare all that so we kind of know. Uh, don't forget either one, I guess, that way. But, um, but exciting, exciting days and times for us. Um, we, are, we have two weeks here in John, and we're going to take a break after that for three weeks to do a series called Hiawatha's story in three verses. And so um, for us, for all of you, of course, but uh, if you're new especially, we're going to kind of um, go back and kind of retell our story through three Bible verses. We're going to kind of highlight some of our philosophical distinctives and some of our theology uh, through three single verses of the Bible. Kind of a fun way to do it, basically. So uh, that'll take us through most of September before we come back to John. So uh, that'll, if you guys kind of like to know where we're going, that's where we're going uh, for these next several weeks together, preaching-wise. So um, today we, uh, so if you've been here for a few weeks, you know that we just finished um, three weeks on the story of Lazarus, the first two-thirds of chapter 11, how Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, he got really sick and died, and how Jesus went to raise him from the dead. And now in today's passage, we're going to see some of the fallout from the miracle, which is maybe not the post-credit scene that we expected from the movie, but um, and by that I mean today's passage, surprisingly, doesn't have to do with Lazarus himself, uh, but with those who want to kill Jesus. The spotlight's taken kind of fully off of Lazarus and the empty tomb and, the, and that resurrection that happened, and it's put uh, right on to these uh, particular Jews who want to kill Jesus and kill him quickly. Uh, but it's kind of odd, right? Uh, a guy was just raised from dead in public, and yet the spotlight is moved from him uh, quite quickly. Uh, maybe much to the chagrin of those of us who wanted to maybe know what life was like for Lazarus after he was raised. I don't know if you guys have ever had that question, but I have a lot. Uh, was he asked for autographs? You know, was, was he happy? Uh, or was he kind of weirded out by it? Um, did, did he uh, just go back to work the next day like nothing happened? Um, was he conscious in heaven? Or did he just feel like he woke, woke from a long sleep? Um, we learn none of that. Instead, John focuses on the religious rulers throwing shade at Jesus uh, for doing this. There's a big reason for that, uh, and we'll, we'll come back to it. Um, but for now, let's uh, kind of read and catch you guys up here a little bit on, on this fallout that um, we were just talking a little bit about. Uh, Caiaphas is the high priest at this point in, in history. Uh, we'll talk about him, uh, but today we're, t- we're calling this Caiaphas the unintentional prophets uh, from John 11, 45 to 57. If you want to follow along on screen, please do. Uh, also, this, um, if you want to open up a Bible or a phone app or your sermon insert, please feel free to do that as well. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen uh, what, he, what he did, believed in him. But some of them went out to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and said to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. All right, just to get your bearings a little bit here as well, outline-wise with the book, this Passover that's mentioned at the end is the Passover that Jesus will die on. And so Jesus' death is imminent here as well. Uh, So if you'd like to kind of outline books and put marks and stuff, uh, basically uh, John 1 to 11 uh, covers a few years of Jesus' life, but um, uh, from chapter 12 onward is the last week, essentially, of Jesus' life. And so this is not just one of the Passovers in an indiscriminate way, uh, but this is the one that he will, um, the, the feast, the festival, uh, the Passover, that he will die on uh, quite soon. So even though we're going to preach this book through Easter, next Easter, a long way to go, uh, this uh, second half of the book, like the synoptics do in a way, they really emphasize the passion, which is a, a Latin, uh, comes from the Latin word for suffering of Christ. It, it emphasizes that last week of Jesus' uh, life, what he said, what he did, but especially his arrest, his trial, his death, and resurrection. All right, so today I have three themes I want to look at with you. Uh, The first is kind of an aside. It it stems from what we just talked about before I read the passage, Um, highs and lows. Uh, John 11 here, so kind of in the spirit of what we're just talking about, John 11 I think is interesting um, for a lot of reasons, but it's interesting because it moves us from the highest of highs, uh, so Lazarus rising from the dead and all that came with that, to the mundane. And even a pretty significant low from Jesus' vantage points uh, being plotted against. Um, really in one verse. Uh, so Lazarus, again, was just publicly raised from the dead. Uh, Jesus' enemies aren't denying it. I mean, it happened publicly, so no one's denying it. Even his enemies here are acknowledging that this happened, right? Because how could they deny it? But now Jesus is forced out into the wilderness, uh, out on the outskirts of town, Uh, Passover is mentioned here at the end, religious rites, people getting ready to kind of purify themselves and wash up uh, to celebrate the feast. There are people just going about their day worshiping and working and, as we see here, interacting on different levels. Even though it's significant, the conversation's significant, we'll come back to that, they're talking about people, they're talking about what they're going to do about Jesus. Um, So, in other words, the world keeps spinning. Uh, as, it, as it comes down off the high of Lazarus, the world just keeps going on and spinning. And here's where there's good news in this. Uh, if there was one constant with the first part of chapter 11 and this week's passage, it's Jesus. Jesus is there in both sides of chapter 11, meaning that he's not just the God of the highs, but he is the God of the normal. He is the God of the mundane. He stands at the face of tombs calling out corpses to come to life. Uh, But he's also there when we're pushing papers at work and when we're changing diapers and cooking dinner. Uh, Put differently, the gospel is not about God calling us away from the mundane to the more extraordinary, but about God meeting us where we are by grace. 
In God's kingdom, the, the person who stands on a hill and preaches and thousands are saved is exactly the same as the one who never does that. Because it's by faith we are saved. It's, it's through our faith in the grace of God that we are saved, not based on what we do. Uh, Hebrews 11, I was reading Hebrews 11 this week and thought about this um, because it says there that by faith, the people of old conquered kingdoms and built arks and saw the dead raised and shut the mouths of lions. But also by faith, people lived in tents and had babies and were teased. So, you know, it's like those last things aren't the stuff of, you know, Christian conferences where we go and hear about those kinds of things. Uh, but they are the stuff of normal Christian lives. And so your life, Christian, is not about you moving from the mundane to the extraordinary, as if there's some kind of post-conversion test you must pass to prove your worth and the genuineness of your decision to follow Jesus. In fact, to think so is one of the marks of legalism. But Jesus, this is the point, uh, the gospel is Jesus meeting you where you are at, blessing you from outside of you with himself, apart from your circumstances, and saving you by his grace through your trust in him and through your faith, uh, not your works. Love that last song. We think it was the last song, but the idea of the weakness of our faith, uh, which is almost always true. Your faith is rarely going to be strong. Uh, even though it can get stronger, it can grow, uh, many times it's, it's the weakness, the mustard seed of our faith put and laid upon the right object who is strong, Jesus, not you, him, laid upon the right object, it becomes strong uh, at, at that time. And so in that, regard, in that way then, uh, the, the Bible celebrates weakness because it celebrates grace. To celebrate grace is to celebrate weakness. Paul says, I brag about being weak. Did you guys do that? Do you brag about your failures? Do you brag about your weakness? Do you brag about these things? I mean, Paul is excited to do that because he knows when he does that, exemplifies God. Exemplifies the fact that it's not me that saves myself or what I do, or my knowledge as a theologian, or as an apostle. None of that matters, ultimately, before God. Because if, I, don't, I don't turn his head with those things. I turn God, you guys turn God's head because of his love for you, not by what you do. And so in the weakness of our faith, we can approach. In the weakness of our faith, in the face of death, which we just kind of talked about the last few weeks, Christ is there, God is there, in the mundane, in even the lows, and he, his presence is what dictates your salvation. Apart from your circumstance, his presence is what dictates your salvation. And it's by his grace and through your faith, not your works, Ephesians 2 says, that that's the case. And so I think John 11, as an aside, the way it flows um, in an implicit manner shows you this, shows us this, that God, Jesus is there in both. And he gives meaning to things by his presence and saves apart from circumstance uh, through what he's going to do for us on the cross, which we'll come to here in a second. All right, moving on from that is this next section, uh, which is basically the, the meat of the section, uh, the main points. So I want to go back and read verses 47 to 53 uh, to remind you of this. This is really interesting. Verse 47 says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They're kind of acting off what he's saying here, right? They're acting on the prophecy. Well, if that's true, then we're going to go kill him. All right, so again, this is kind of the center of the passage, obviously, so we'll spend some time here. Uh, but this, it's this exchange between some of the Pharisees and other religious rulers and Caiaphas, the, the high priest. Uh, the, the ones who come to Caiaphas are basically saying, this guy Jesus can't stop doing miraculous things. Now he's even raising the dead. People are continuing to flock to him, and their concern is the Romans are going to interpret that as an uprising. They're going to see the Jews are kind of clamoring. They're gathering around this guy. They're going to anoint him king, and the Romans will come and just uh, squash it. And with that, they'll, they'll, they'll take their place away, their place being the temple. They'll take our temple away. They'll take the whole nation away. Uh, at this point in history, if you didn't know this, the Romans had annexed this land centuries prior. So the Jews are there. It's kind of their land. It's their land. Store, their God-given land historically, but the Romans had annexed it. So it's really, it's kind of theirs too. And so they're saying the Romans will interpret this the wrong way and they're going to come and make things even worse. All right? So Caiaphas responds with, guys, stop worrying. He's going to die or we're going to kill him and we'll all be okay. It's basically like his, you know, the... the Lame, uh, lame uh, paraphrase there, but that's basically what he's saying. Uh, th- then he prophesies something more specific that we'll get to in a second, but, but note John's key inclusion here. It says that he did not say this of his own accord, meaning he's, he spoke beyond himself. God intended something good from his evil words, things that would actually come true, just not in the way Caiaphas intended. All right, so let's go back, though, to, before we get to Caiaphas, uh, we're going to walk through uh, four unintentional prophecies. The first one actually has to do not with Caiaphas, but with the other Pharisees and the chief priests who bring the concern uh, to Caiaphas. So um, the first thing is, when the Pharisees say, if people keep believing in Jesus, the Romans will come and take away our temple. Um, so again, this is actually the first one here because uh, a couple of reasons. One, the Romans do actually do this in AD 70, and Jesus predicts it right before he's arrested. Matthew and Mark, two other gospel writers, include this actually right before Jesus is arrested. He talks about this happening. So it's predicted uh, not just here in an unintentional way, but in a very more direct, intentional way uh, by Jesus later on. So there's that, um, but that's just the fringe trimmings, I think of the matter, the outer shell. The, the deeper reality here is that Jesus took away the temple the second he died on the cross, hence the ripping of the veil of the Holy of Holies. When Jesus died, the Bible says he established a new testament, and the old was abolished along with the temple and all of its associated uh, law trimmings, so to speak. And, and, the, and with that, the need for sinners to wash up and observe the commandments in order to approach God or to stay in covenant with him. Uh, the Bible talks about this. Actually, in the Old Testament, too, you see the prophets speak in these terms where no longer would it be our sacrifices that we purchased with our money that we earned with our religious or moral labor, but God sacrificing for us. Actually, at one point, uh, several points in the prophets, it says that God despises our sacrifices 
uh, because they're associated with us. And so even the, the, um, the, 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 the sacrifices themselves and the covenant wrapped around it, God began to despise. And he promised that it would, that it would be replaced by his son, replaced by the work of a suffering servant. That is to say, God sacrificing for you and me. That would become the center. But, but again, the, the Romans, it's not the Romans who would ultimately do this, but Jesus himself. Uh, through his bloody death, he becomes the new mediator between God and people. And in that way, he takes away the temple. He takes away the need for sacrifice, the, the animal sacrifice, our sacrifices, the need for the law, and all along it, uh, with it, the need for you and I to prove ourselves. In fact, in the book of Acts, too, you see this where um, Stephen and Paul, a couple of big characters, Jewish Christians in the book, are at different points accused of speaking against the temple and against this holy place, the other Jews say. And they, they kind of accuse them on that, because, uh, on that level because when you talk about the gospel and talk about the New Testament, it does sound like that. It actually should at times uh, that we talk against these things because we talk about the need for us to approach God on our own terms and instead the fact that God is already close to us based on Christ. All right, so that's the first thing that the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests are bringing, this unintentional prophecy of, yes, uh, your temple will be taken away. It will be destroyed, but before that, it will be figuratively removed as this thing that stands between God and people. Jesus will do that. He will rip it in half, the veil. The moment he dies, he will rip that veil in half, and God will come running out from that Holy of Holies to be with people because sin will be so much atoned for. All right? The second, uh, or the next three of these have to do with Caiaphas. So walk through these one at a time. Um, these unintentional prophecies that uh, come from Caiaphas's mouth. First is, you know nothing at all, which um, maybe first and foremost is just rude, uh, you know, but it's also uh, akin to saying that we carry nothing in our arms that can save us. Um, actually, Paul the apostle says in Galatians 6 that, that we are nothing. When we think that we're something, when we're nothing, we deceive ourselves. Um, this reminded me of Romans 3 where uh, it says, um, there's no one who understands, there's no one who does good. And, you know, for the apostle, he saw that these two things go together. The failure to understand and to know nothing and the failure to do good, those two things are in a way synonymous. And I think they are prophetically here so as well in John 11. There's no one who understands. There's no one who does good. Um, but before you guys get too discouraged by that, you know, it's actually, this is not an insult. Actually, Caiaphas is probably insulting his friends, so that's not good. But God, when, when, the, when the truth comes in love, it's not an insult. Um, this is actually a grounding thing for us because this idea gives us a posture of opening our hands to receive. Uh, it, it lets us laugh at ourselves. It, it's... Um, David Zoll has said that this is a gateway to grace idea when we understand this. Uh, we can open our hands to receive rather than clinging to our trophies and, and our accolades. And so um, it makes sense, actually, I think, that this is here because what he says next after this is more uh, precisely the, or explicitly the gospel. But this is kind of the pre-gospel that we talk about a lot as Christians. Or if you're not a Christian yet, maybe you don't know this, but we talk a lot of, about this the Bible, because the Bible does that we are not good, that we are, at our, Jesus says, we're at our core evil, um, and we need a solution from outside of us, not within. Um, and so it's interesting that Caiaphas, not intending this to be sort of the pre-gospel statement, um, I think really sets up his, 
next unintentional prophecies uh, in kind of the right way. All right, so the, the next level of this, though, is when he says, better that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Um, the, the sentiment behind what Caiaphas says here, mixed with you know, him not really knowing what he's saying, it reminded me of this, uh, this uh, tweet exchange, Twitter exchange, or meme, basically. Some of you guys have seen this, but or, well, some, guy just, some guy just said, like, we should just, um, he's concerned about you know, debt, so we should just pin all the debt on the world to one guy and then kill him. Uh, to which a pastor chimes in and says, I'm a pastor and pal if I got some, some good news for you. Um, it's, it's kind of like that, right? Uh, it's, Caiaphas has no idea what he's saying, uh, but he's, like, he's, he's actually an enemy of Jesus, but he's saying the gospel in like the, 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 with the precise, like the right language. You know, it's like, it's, it's, this is, if this was like post-cross, you know, it'd be, this guy would be right, low-hanging fruit for evangelism. Um, but, but anyway, in that vein, though, Caiaphas is, to kind of like pull from John's language elsewhere, Caiaphas's actual words sound a lot like John 3.16, don't they? Where it says, God in this way loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so um, Caiaphas is thinking, again, he's thinking politically here. He's thinking, about, he's, he's thinking in an Israel-centric way. The Jews who are scattered out of our land, elsewhere around the ancient world at that time, they will be brought in, uh, the diaspora, um, also the ones who are here. Um, but he, so he's thinking very kind of like physically, very Israel-centrically, um, maybe even politically, but He's speaking beyond himself, it says, right? Like John's saying, he didn't know what he was saying. God was helping him to say things, even the enemy of, uh, of Jesus, to say things that he didn't, didn't know, all right? The third, which builds on this, is Jesus will die to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, so again, Caiaphas here is thinking Israel-centric, political, um, but, he doesn't, he, but, but God intends this for a much greater good. Uh, this is a beautiful image of God opening his arms and gathering in his people. Uh, but notice the means. Even, again, even the enemy of Jesus, the one who wants to kill him, uh, an enemy of God, is, is kind of understanding this, you could say, uh, in, in a way, or uh, in a physical way. It's a notice the means. The means of God doing this, of gathering in people, the means of him going out and seeking and bringing people in is the death of his son. There is no such thing as a theology of God gathering apart from the cross. There's no such thing in the Bible or in any corner of Christian theology that allows for or, or that says that God can do this, can gather in enemies and sinners and consider them as children without the cross happening first. Jesus' death is the way. His spilt blood is the way that God seeks us out and gathers us in. There's no other way. No other way that pertains to you and what you do or even anything that he would do in a general sense. Like the Bible is not, uh, you know, a generalist when it comes to its understanding of love and gathering and salvation. It's specific. It's always specific. Never forget that. 
It's the channel Jesus is. He, his, the cross is the conduit and the means. And so it's the death of his son, Jesus' death, because of how much it atones for our sins, is the means by which God can gather the wicked. Because scattering implies being far away from something, right? It's like we might describe an old friendship as, well, we, we drifted slowly away from one another over the years. You guys ever said that about someone? Uh, I, we drifted slowly away from that person we, we used to know when we were in high school or college or whatever. Um, well, that's where we are with God, but it's actually worse because it's not just that we, we've drifted, we've, it's self-imposed, we've wanted it. We've sinned, we've gone our own way, but God gathers us back. And um, what I like about this last layer of the unintentional prophecy is that it moves us from the second to the third. It moves us from the transactionary that Jesus will just die for the nation or for the world or for people, which is good and beautiful and the gospel and true, but it moves it from that to the personal, to the transact, from the transactional to this being about us. Um, you know, you guys are, and I'd encourage you to read it this way and things like this this way. This prophecy is about you guys. It's about me. Do you know that? Like, you're the children of God. Like, you're in this, you're in this section. This, when this was unintentionally prophesied, you're in it. Like, you're in, like the, you're in the white space. You're in the, 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 in the middle of the lines here. You're the implication. You're, you're the far-reaching ends, we are, of, of this prophecy. Like, he's claimed us. He's won us as enemies, and he's made us his children. Like, it's It's incredible. And so, but what, what gathering implies, though, is that God wanted to do this, that it's personal, that he suffered. He, uh, you know, we, we, we at times as Christians um, talk about non-Christians as seekers. Maybe you're not a Christian and you consider yourself that today, that I, I'm not, but I'm, I'm seeking and I'm kind of interested in some of this stuff, and that's, that's great. Um, but the truth of the Bible, the truth of the gospel is God will always be more of a seeker of you, then you will be of him. Always. Actually, I want to say that to Christians here. Most of you are Christians. God will always be more of a seeker of you, of a gatherer of you, of a pursuer of you, than you will be a seeker of him. You never, ever graduate from that idea. It does not change at conversion just because you think you successfully sought him out. You sought him because he was seeking you. See, the truth of the gospel is he's gathered you. And so we follow him, but only because he's pursued us first. Look at the disciples' story in the gospels, right? Do they follow him? Yes, but how are they called? They're like doing this at work. They're on their phones or fishing for fish, you know, casting nets. They were called, right? They were pursued. Everyone's pursued. Everyone's pursued. After Jesus rises from the dead, not one single person finds Jesus. You ever notice that? In all of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, it's always Jesus who appears to them, sometimes walking through walls to get to people. That's how much he wants to be with you. That's why you're a Christian if you're saved. He's walked through the wall of sin and death. He's walked through an unpassable object you can't walk through. You can't save yourself, but he can save you, right? The whole 
stories plastered with these ideas. Even here, the enemy of Jesus is prophesying this. It's, it's impossible for it not to happen. Your salvation is impossible for it not to happen if Jesus is at the helm. If you're steering the ship, if I'm steering the ship, there's zero chance we'll be saved. Zero chance. But if it's all on God's shoulders, entirely on him, if it's by grace we're saved, not by works, the spirit, not the law, the Bible says, then we're saved. And we stay saved in covenant with God based on his incredible pursuit, his incredible love, his incredible act of, of gathering. All right, so, and that moves us into this last part. Let me read verse 54 again uh, to you guys, which says, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. All right. Now, at first glance, this verse might sound like filler, uh, like it's a simple reference to how Jesus was pushed out to the outskirts because the Jews were plotting his death. But here's um, an asterisk you need to put by that in your mind if you haven't already. A couple of them. Uh, one, we know that Jesus wants to die, right? Jesus came to die. It's why he's here. So why is he running? That's kind of like one thing in our mind right away. We say, well, what, what's, what's going on here? One answer to that is he wants to die in Passover, which is chronological and theological. We'll come to that later in the series. But it's not just that. And, this is the, second, this is, and the, the second thing is the answer to that. The second thing is, wilderness in the Bible is closely associated with almost a biblical synonym to exile and for being scattered from God. All over the Bible. This is what like wilderness means. Do a word study on it more than that. For to study what the, the themes mean in, in, the, in the scriptures. Wilderness means you're not where God is. You're not in the promised land. You're not in New Eden. You're out and you're exposed. Enemies surround you. There's no food. It's a bad place. Bad place to be. All right, so wilderness, which is where Jesus is going here um, in, in verse 54, is a biblical synonym for being scattered from God. And so you see, Caiaphas's prophecy about the ingathering comes true, this is the point, comes true by way of someone else's suffering. It's a corresponding suffering, you could say. Uh, John, the author, is not shy about it. This passage, is a pro- this verse, is a prophecy in, in, in its own right. The point being, it's not just that Jesus' death would bring in the lost sinner, but that it would be Jesus' own scattering that would bring in the lost sinner. So when Jesus is dying on the cross, he cries out this, which is ripe with wilderness imagery, exile imagery. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, somehow, the son becomes the outcast. And the outcast becomes a child, child of the king. On the cross, Jesus was pushed out to the wilderness, becoming an exile for you and me, that we might be brought in. Notice here in the passage, I don't think I have it up here, but in the passage it says that the people where they're saying, well, what do you think? Is Jesus going to come to the feast or not? Where are they when they say that? Do you remember? They're in the temple, which 
in Old Testament times is symbolic of God's presence. And so you have this like ships passing in the night kind of idea. You have this thing of the enemies of God are in the temple and yet Jesus is being pushed out to the wilderness. This is a symbol. This is a, a word picture for what the gospel truly is and that is substitutionary atonement. And it's the only way to be saved. It's interesting narratively that right alongside this, um, you have in verses 55 and 56 mention of the Passover, but look what it says. It says that this is all happening uh, during a lead-up to the festival, but these people are coming into the Passover to celebrate, and they're, they're coming in to purify themselves. But then in verse 56, you have these other Jews who are believing in him, different kinds of people here. Some are accepting, remember, some are rejecting. Um, looking for Jesus and love the like r- kind of just rich tension that there is in, um, in this idea between people seeking to purify themselves uh, based on what they do with out- outer washings that were um, a lawful thing for them to do. They, they were keeping the law by purifying themselves, washing themselves but juxtaposed to people simply seeking to find Jesus. And I think it's a a look ahead, it's a foreshadowing to the one you don't have to purify yourself to celebrate. Jesus, we'll learn this later in the series, but Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He's the true Passover festival. He dies on Passover for that reason. Kind of wrecking the ending here a little bit, but it's... But this is where we're headed. And so John, with like a look ahead here, with one eye on that, you're starting to see the law on its last breath. You're starting to see that this idea of purifying yourself, it's, it's dead and dying. It's passing away. Um, people are starting to look for Jesus instead. It's not about us. It's about him. It's a clash of testaments really here, old and new, doing versus believing. Um, the idea of self-purification by way of commandment following is gasping for breath and will slowly die. Jesus here is here to replace all of that. Hebrews 1, 3 is one of the many places that gets at this, but it says, Jesus came and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus didn't go through all of this to sort of purify you, but now it's up to you to live a pure life um, in order to stay saved. That, that's Don't cheapen the gospel for you, yourself, your friends, your kids, your peers, your neighbors, those you're evangelizing? Do you think that's what it says? Did he purify you wholly or partially? What do the scriptures teach? There's movement in this passage. I mean, let me, let me just say it. Uh, there's nothing you can do in life, nothing that will in any way purify yourself. Ever. Ever. It didn't work doesn't mean there aren't like choices you can make that are more pure than others or thoughts you can think that are more pure than others. But I'm saying like at the core, there's nothing you can do to ultimately before God purify yourself. It's either we come to him and are purified by him, by his blood like a fountain pouring out of it, washing over us, and we believe in that, we trust in that, or we don't, or we think it's a havesies. This gets us going on the track but now it's a little bit kind of about us. We prove our worth. We prove the genuineness of our faith. We purify our lives uh, by being 
good people by being obedient. Um, it's, there's a better way. There's just a better, there's a better way to think, a better way to read these things. There, there's movement here. Um, see, the gospel say in this passage, I'll, I'll end with this, this word, the gospel according to the last part of John 11 is Jesus was scattered for you. Jesus was exiled in love for you. Jesus was crucified for you that you might be gathered in. You are that loved. God loves you that much. God shows his love in this way. Right here. In this way he loved you. Not that he just loves, but in this way. In this manner. With, the, with these optics. With this, with this conduit. This is how he shows and demonstrates his love at the highest level, and nothing you ever do or won't do will change that. Nothing you ever do or won't do will change that, ever. Believe in him. He's that. This is what we call big God theology in the biz. All right, big God theology. Keep him big. Don't shrink him to your size. All right? Keep, keep him big. Keep him above you. Keep him, above, keep him the Lord of all the scriptures, where all the scriptures are telling this story. Everything is about his substitutionary atonement and love for us. But you and I are that loved, and, and, and we can't, we're too small to change that. So my, I, I would encourage you is also, like, with some pastoral encouragement, if you're a Christian, live as though you've been gathered to God. Live as though that's true. But you see how different that is than just saying, go and be a good person this week? Like, live as though something's truth about you. Um, something happened outside of you that changes everything. Live as though it's actually the case. Breathe it in. Drink it down to the dregs. And, and then go and live your life in freedom and in love for God's people and those who are not yet saved. Believe in him. Trust in his own self-scattering in his own suffering, and you, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage today and all of John 11, which culminates uh, in an unlikely way, but a way that's rich and full of hope for us, um, that you are the God of the lows and the mundanes and the mysteries and the, uh, and the unlikely left turns of life. Um, the gospel orbits completely around the cross. It, there, there's, there's no way to separate them. God suffered for us. God bled for us. It's incredible news. God, I pray you'd free us from that, uh, free us from not believing it, free us from baggage maybe that we're bringing into this room even today that um, prevents us from maybe fully, fully believing that. Even though we might sufficiently believe it, um, none of us maybe fully believe it. I know I don't. Um, God, liberate us, free us to, uh, to believe in the gospel today, um, the gospel of Jesus' exile for the sake of exiles like us. Jesus' forsakenness for the sake of forsaken ones, for the sake of kicked out of the Garden of Eden ones like us. Um, Jesus, you're a man of sorrows, the, the, the prophet said, and of course we see it in the New Testament. Um, Thank you that we don't have to purify ourselves to be saved. We don't have to purify ourselves to stay saved. We can't. 
the, the, the days of self-purification, religious rites and outer washings are over. Um, the only way to have our, our lives changed are, is, is through the, the inward change of the heart where we gaze all the more strongly and intently and beautifully at, at the cross of Christ. Um, God, make us new, everyone in this room, myself. Um, make us new and uh, help us to worship now and, uh, as we close in Christ. Amen.